0: Section 39 of Volume 1A of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1A, Section 39. Chapter eight part four the spiritual powers which in the primitive church were in a great measure dependent on the civil had by a gradual process reached an equality and independence and though the limits of the two jurisdictions were difficult to ascertain or define it was not impossible but by moderation on both sides government might still have been conducted in that imperfect and irregular manner which attends all human institutions. But as the ignorance of the age encouraged the ecclesiastics daily to extend their privileges, and even to advance maxims totally incompatible with civil government, Henry had thought it high time to put an end to their pretensions, and formally, In a public council to fix those powers which belonged to the magistrate and which he was for the future determined to maintain in this attempt he was led to re-establish customs which though ancient were beginning to be abolished by a contrary practice and which were still more strongly opposed by the prevailing opinions and sentiments of the age principle therefore stood on the one side power on the other. And if the English had been actuated by conscience more than by present interest, the controversy must soon, by the general defection of Henry's subjects, have been decided against him. Becket, in order to forward this event, filled all places with exclamations against the violence which he had suffered. He compared himself to Christ who had been condemned by a lay tribunal, and who was crucified anew in the present oppressions under which his church laboured. He took it for granted, as a point incontestable, that his cause was the cause of God. He assumed the character of champion for the patrimony of the divinity. He pretended to be the spiritual father of the king and all the people of England he even told henry that kings reign solely by the authority of the church and though he had thus torn off the veil more openly on the one side than that prince had on the other he seemed still from the general favour borne him by the ecclesiastics to have all the advantage in the argument the king that he might employ the weapons of temporal power remaining in his hands suspended the payment of Peter's pence. He made advances towards an alliance with the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, who was at that time engaged in violent wars with Pope Alexander. He discovered some intentions of acknowledging Pascal III, the present antipope who was protected by that Emperor, and by these expedients he endeavoured to terrify the enterprising though prudent pontiff from proceeding to extremities against him but the violence of becket still more than the nature of the controversy kept affairs from remaining long in suspense between the parties that prelate instigated by revenge and animated by the present glory attending his situation pushed matters to a decision and issued a censure excommunicating the king's chief ministers by name and comprehending in general all those who favored or obeyed the constitutions of clarendon these constitutions he abrogated and annulled he absolved all men from the oaths which they had taken to observe them and he suspended the spiritual thunder over henry himself only that the prince might avoid the blow by a timely repentance the situation of henry was so unhappy that he could employ no expedient for saving his ministers from this terrible censure, but by appealing to the Pope himself, and having recourse to a tribunal whose authority he had himself attempted to abridge in this very article of appeals, and which he knew was so deeply engaged on the side of his adversary. But even this expedient was not likely to be long effectual. Becket had obtained from the Pope a Legantine commission over England, and in virtue of that authority, which admitted of no appeal, he summoned the bishops of London, Salisbury, and others to attend him, and ordered, under pain of excommunication, the Eclastics sequestered on his account to be restored in two months to all their benefices. But John of Oxford, the King's agent with the Pope, had the address to procure orders for suspending this sentence and he gave the pontiff such hopes of a speedy reconcilement between the king and becket that two legates william of pavia and otho were sent to normandy where the king then resided and they endeavoured to find expedients for that purpose but the pretensions of the parties were as yet too opposite to admit of an accommodation the king required that all the constitutions of clarendon should be ratified becket that previously to any agreement he and his adherents should be restored to their possessions and as the legates had no power to pronounce a definite sentence on either side the negotiation soon after came to nothing the cardinal of pavia also being much attached to henry Took care to protract the negotiation to mitigate the pope by the accounts which he sent of that prince's conduct and to procure him every possible indulgence from the see of rome about this time the king had also the address to obtain a dispensation for the marriage of his third son geoffrey with the heiress of brittany A concession which considering henry's demerits towards the church gave great scandal both to becket and his zealous patron the king of france the intricacies of the feudal law had in that age rendered the boundaries of power between the prince and his vassals and between one prince and another as uncertain as those between the crown and the mitre and all wars took their origin from disputes, which, had there been any tribunal possessed of power to enforce their decrees, ought to have been decided only before a court of judicature. Henry, in prosecution of some controversies in which he was involved with the Count of Auvergne, a vassal of the Duchy of Guienne, had invaded the territories of that nobleman, who had long recourse to the King of France, his superior lord, for protection, and thereby kindled a war between the two monarchs. But the war was, as usual, no less feeble in its operations than it was frivolous in its cause and object, and after occasioning some mutual depredations and some insurrections among the barons of Poictou and Guyenne, was terminated by a peace the terms of this peace were rather disadvantageous to henry and proved that that prince had by reason of his contest with the church lost the superiority which he had hitherto maintained over the crown of france an additional motive to him for accommodating those differences the pope and the king began at last to perceive that in the present situation of affairs neither of them could expect a final and decisive victory over the other, and that they had more to fear than to hope from the duration of the controversy. Though the vigour of Henry's government had confirmed his authority in all his dominions, his throne might be shaken by a sentence of excommunication, and if England itself could, by its situation, be more easily guarded against the contagion of superstitious prejudices, his French provinces, at least whose communication was open with the neighbouring states, would be much exposed, on that account, to some great revolution or convulsion. He could not, therefore, reasonably imagine that the Pope, while he retained such a check upon him, would formally recognise the constitutions of Clarendon, which both put an end to papal pretensions in england and would give an example to other states of asserting a like independency pope alexander on the other hand being still engaged in dangerous wars with the emperor frederick might justly apprehend that henry rather than relinquish claims of such importance would join the party of his enemy and as the trials hitherto made of the spiritual weapons by becket had not succeeded to his expectation, and everything had remained quiet in all the king's dominions. Nothing seemed impossible to the capacity and vigilance of so great a monarch. The disposition of minds on both sides, resulting from these circumstances, produced frequent attempts towards an accommodation. But as both parties knew that the essential articles of the dispute could not then be terminated they entertained a perpetual jealousy of each other and were anxious not to lose the least advantage in the negotiation the nuncios gratian and vivian having received a commission to endeavor a reconciliation met with the king in normandy and after all differences seemed to be adjusted henry offered to sign the treaty with a salvo to his royal dignity which gave such umbrage to Becket, that the negotiation in the end became fruitless, and the excommunications were renewed against the king's ministers. Another negotiation was conducted at Montmirail, in presence of the king of France and the French prelates where Becket also offered to make his submissions, with a salvo to the honour of God and the liberties of the church which for a like reason was extremely offensive to the king, and rendered the treaty abortive. A third conference under the same mediation was broken off by Becket's insisting on a like reserve in his submissions, and even in a fourth treaty, when all the terms were adjusted, and when the primate expected to be introduced to the king, and to receive the kiss of peace, which it was usual for princes to grant in those times, and which was regarded as a sure pledge of forgiveness, Henry refused him that honour, under pretense that during his anger he had made a rash vow to that purpose. This formality served, among such jealous spirits, to prevent the conclusion of the treaty and though the difficulty was attempted to be overcome by a dispensation which the Pope granted to Henry from his vow, that Prince could not be prevailed on to depart from the resolution which he had taken. In one of these conferences, at which the French king was present, Henry said to that monarch, "'There have been many kings of England, some of greater, some of less authority than myself.' There have also been many archbishops of Canterbury, holy and good men, and entitled to every kind of respect. Let Becket but act towards me with the same submission which the greatest of his predecessors have paid to the least of mine, and there shall be no controversy between us. Lewis was so struck with this state of the case, and with an offer which Henry made to submit his cause to the French clergy, that he could not forbear condemning the primate and withdrawing his friendship from him during some time but the bigotry of that prince and their common animosity against henry soon produced a renewal of their former good correspondence all difficulties were at last adjusted between the parties and the king allowed becket to return on conditions which may be esteemed both honourable and advantageous to that prelate. He was not required to give up any rights of the Church, or resign any of those pretensions which had been the original ground of the controversy. It was agreed that these questions should be buried in oblivion, but that Becket and his adherents should, without making further submission, be restored to all their livings, and that even the possessors of such benefices as depended on the see of canterbury and had been filled during the primate's absence should be expelled and becket have liberty to supply the vacancies in return for concessions which entrenched so deeply on the honour and dignity of the crown henry reaped only the advantage of seeing his ministers absolved from the sentence of excommunication pronounced against them, and of preventing the interdict which, if these hard conditions had not been complied with, was ready to be laid on all his dominions. It was easy to see how much he dreaded that event, when a prince of so high a spirit could submit to terms so dishonorable in order to prevent it so anxious was henry to accommodate all differences and to reconcile himself fully with becket that he took the most extraordinary steps to flatter his vanity and even on one occasion humiliated himself so far as to hold the stirrup of that haughty prelate while he mounted but the king attained not even that temporary tranquillity which he had hoped to reap from these expedients During the heat of his quarrel with Becket, while he was every day expecting an interdict to be laid on his kingdom, and a sentence of excommunication to be fulminated against his person, he had thought it prudent to have his son, Prince Henry, associated with him in the royalty, and to make him be crowned king by the hands of Roger, Archbishop of York. By this precaution he both ensured the succession of that prince which, considering the many past irregularities in that point, could not but be esteemed somewhat precarious, and he preserved at least his family on the throne if the sentence of excommunication should have the effect which he dreaded, and should make his subjects renounce their allegiance to him. Though his design was conducted with expedition and secrecy, Beckett, before it was carried into execution, had got intelligence of it and being desirous of obstructing all henry's measures as well as anxious to prevent this affront to himself who pretended to the sole right as archbishop of canterbury to officiate in the coronation he had inhibited all the prelates of england from assisting at this ceremony had procured from the pope a mandate to the same purpose and had incited the King of France to protest against the coronation of young Henry, unless the princess, daughter of that monarch, should at the same time receive the royal unction. There prevailed in that age an opinion which was akin to its other superstitions, that the royal unction was essential to the exercise of royal power. It was therefore natural, both for the King of France, careful of his daughter's establishment and for becket jealous of his own dignity de demand in the treaty with henry some satisfaction in this essential point henry after apologizing to lewis for the omission with regard to margaret and excusing it on account of the secrecy and dispatch required for conducting that measure promised That the ceremony should be renewed in the persons both of the prince and princess and he assured becket that besides receiving the acknowledgments of roger and the other bishops for the seeming affront put on the see of canterbury the primate should as a further satisfaction recover his rights by officiating in this coronation but the violent spirit of becket ELATED BY THE POWER OF THE CHURCH AND BY THE VICTORY WHICH HE HAD ALREADY OBTAINED OVER HIS SOVEREIGN, WAS NOT CONTENT WITH THIS VOLUNTARY COMPENSATION, BUT RESOLVED TO MAKE THE INJURY WHICH HE PRETENDED TO HAVE SUFFERED A HANDLE FOR TAKING REVENGE ON ALL HIS ENEMIES. ON HIS ARRIVAL IN ENGLAND HE MET THE ARCHBISHOP OF YORK AND THE BISHOPS OF LONDON AND Salisbury who were on their journey to the king in Normandy. He notified to the archbishop the sentence of suspension, and to the two bishops that of excommunication, which at his solicitation the pope had pronounced against them. Reginald de Warren and Gervaise de Cornhill, two of the king's ministers who were employed on their duty in Kent, Asked him on hearing of this bold attempt whether he meant to bring fire and sword into the kingdom but the primate heedless of the reproof proceeded in the most ostentatious manner to take possession of his diocese in rochester and all the towns through which he passed he was received with the shouts and acclamations of the populace as he approached southwark the clergy the laity Men of all ranks and ages came forth to meet him, and celebrated with hymns of joy his triumphant entrance, and though he was obliged by order of the young prince who resided at Woodstock to return to his diocese, he found that he was not mistaken when he reckoned upon the highest veneration of the public towards his person and his dignity he proceeded therefore with the more courage to dart his spiritual thunders he issued the sentence of excommunication against robert de brock and nigel de sackville with many others who either had assisted at the coronation of the prince or been active in the late persecution of the exiled clergy this violent measure by which he in effect denounced war against the king himself is commonly ascribed to the vindictive disposition and imperious character of Becket. But as this prelate was also a man of acknowledged abilities, we are not in his passions alone to look for the cause of his conduct when he proceeded to these extremities against his enemies. His sagacity had led him to discover all Henry's intentions, and he proposed by this bold and unexpected assault to prevent the execution of them the king from his experience of the dispositions of his people was become sensible that his enterprise had been too bold in establishing the constitutions of clarendon in defining all the branches of royal power and in endeavouring to extort from the church of england as well as from the pope and express avowal of these disputed prerogatives. Conscious also of his own violence in attempting to break or subdue the inflexible primate, he was not displeased to undo that measure which had given his enemies such advantage against him, and he was contented that the controversy should terminate in that ambiguous manner which was the utmost that princes in those ages could hope to attain in their disputes with the see of Rome. Though he dropped for the present the prosecution of Becket, he still reserved to himself the right of maintaining that the conditions of Clarendon, the original ground of the quarrel, were both the ancient customs and the present law of the realm, and though he knew that the papal clergy asserted them to be impious in themselves, as well as abrogated by the sentence of the sovereign pontiff, he intended, in spite of their clamours, steadily to put those laws in execution, and to trust to his own abilities, and to the course of events, for success in that perilous enterprise. He hoped that Becket's experience of a six years exile would, after his pride was fully gratified by his restoration, be sufficient to teach him more reserve in his opposition. Or if any controversy arose, he expected thenceforth to engage in a more favourable cause, and to maintain with advantage, while the primate was now in his power, the ancient and undoubted customs of the kingdom against the usurpations of the clergy. But Becket, determined not to betray the ecclesiastical privileges by his connivance, and apprehensive lest a prince of such profound policy, if allowed to proceed in his own way, might probably in the end prevail, resolved to take all the advantage which his present victory gave him, and to disconcert the cautious measures of the king, by the vehemence and rigour of his own conduct. Assured of support from Rome, he was little intimidated by dangers which his courage taught him to despise, and which, even if attended with the most fatal consequences, would serve only to gratify his ambition and thirst of glory. End of section 39